You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and thanks for joining me here on this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and on tonight's show, our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, will share some wine recommendations with us. Sarah O'Neill reveals the history of well-known brand Kellogg's and introduces us to some new cereals in the range. And Kerry Murphy and Sean Naughton give us a caffeine fix thanks to Apple Green's Coffee Operations Division. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. Now, our first guest on tonight's show is regular Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. So let's find out what wine recommendations he has for us. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. And tonight we're going to the Antipodean region to New Zealand. Yes. Uh, a very well-known part of the world for wine in particular. The Cloudy Bay is the one that comes to mind with me that years yes, ago. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It would have been very rare to see Cloudy Bay on a menu. And if you did, it, it probably wasn't cheap, but mm. it was a very sought-after wine. Is it still as exclusive or is it easier it, to get it now? That's exactly it. It's not as exclusive as it used to be. Um, it's easier to get. Um I suppose the reason Cloudy Bay worked particularly well is because an Irish company um, called Finlitter is a wine company, a very old wine company based in Dublin, uh, controlled uh, the Cloudy Bay allocation for Ireland, which was literally about 400 cases or 500 cases. I'm talking back in the early 2000s, that kind of time. And uh, people really wanted it. So they spread it out. They sold nobody a case or two cases. They spread out like three bottles, six bottles, a case maybe to really big customers. And then it became um, sought after and people liked it and, and uh, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't that expensive either. And uh, it really worked. And then a new agent took it over about seven or eight years ago. And there was always much more of it available than that. Just that Finner's view on it was that let's not flood the market with the stuff now. Let's make it a bit more, uh, a bit rarer and uh, then it has an added value. And the other company took it over, then a company called Edward Diddlands, and they imported about 1,000 or 1,200 cases straight away because they thought this stuff sells. And it just collapsed the market for it. It just took away the the mystery, took away the, uh, you know, the people saying, that, God, I managed to get my hands on two bottles of Cloudy Bay, whereas now you could go into a shop and say, listen, I'll drop a case to you, no problem at all if you want it. And how did the consumer hear about it initially? Because it's not like there was a huge advertising campaign behind it that made the, you know, the, the pull effect in the market where the consumer were asking for it. Was it was it just kind of like a word of mouth amongst it, a certain set? Yeah, it was better restaurants that did it. Um, it was the top, very top-end restaurants uh, had wanted it for their wine list. It was the first Sauvignon Blanc um, you know, outside France that really got uh, the attention that the French products had always got before. Um, it was really premium, yet the price wasn't that premium. You know, it was the same price as a very good Chablis would be or a very good Sancerre would be. It was the same price. Yet it had this real, real uh, rarity aspect to it, which really worked. It was New Zealand. The product is exceptionally good now. Really, really nice Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and had a Chardonnay as well and a Pinot Noir, which were less in demand. Um, and the the whole package behind it, um, the winemakers, everything was all very guarded. 
they were the flagship for New Zealand, um, New Zealand wine, wine of New Zealand, that, that brand, if you like, pushed Cloudy Bay all the time as being the one. Now, that stopped as well because obviously other, other wines came up that in blind tastings and in competitions did just as well. So obviously they wanted a piece of the action as well. So it spread out much more. And I thought was one of the most interesting things that happened with um, with Cloudy Bay and and Wither Hills and uh, a lot of product New Zealand products is that they were the very first to move into school caps. Um, you know, fifteen years ago when when we had a real issue with things showing up in school caps, they were the first to produce it and gave no choice. You either take it or you don't. That's what they were coming in, and the whole New Zealand brand took it as uh, the whole New Zealand wineries took it and said. We're going to run with this. We're going to put our best products into it. And that meant that either you bought them or you didn't. Um, whereas if another country had started doing it and put their cheaper products into it and tried to launch it that way, people may have never accepted it. But the way it worked, it worked really well. So, And of course, the screw caps versus the cork is something that we've talked about a few times here, mm. that there's a number of reasons why it is actually better to go for the Absolutely, screw cap. Yeah. You yeah. never need a corkscrew to hand for a never start. Never need a corkscrew. And a funny thing, we were talking this with a customer earlier on, and um, the, the customer an outdoor catering company that did a lot of weddings, and uh, we were talking about wine first, and uh, the lady said it has to be screw cap because they had wine at a wedding a couple of weeks ago where it was cork. And none of the staff she said, could open them. Like, they have gone so far away from it that they just should have had to put some guy down the corner opening bottles of wine for an hour or two uh, because he was the best one at it, you know, which is a terrible waste of a day. Um, whereas the screw caps that are so easy, you open what you need. Even that day, she said, with the corks, we ended up with 18 or 20 bottles unused because they had to be opened beforehand. You couldn't be waiting to do it at the time. So they're much more efficient. Um, they work perfectly well. The only products that are not going into them are the better red products, really, and the really good white products from France, Spain, uh, Italy are not going into screw caps. They're going to stay in cork. Because it doesn't affect the quality of the product. In fact, it probably enhances it because there's no risk of a bottle being corked if there is no, no cork in it. There's no risk at all. It's like it runs down to an absolute uh, decibel of a percent. Um, in opposed to a fairly strong percentage of the corks, which are which are proven to be very difficult. Now there is other methods as well. There's synthetic corks and, and there's compound corks. You know, which are the ones that are not don't really look like an original cork. They're compounded together like chipboard would be to make a cork, and they're hard to open because they're not as flexible as the old corks were, and they don't breathe as well. And uh, whereas the screw caps are just so much so much easier. And people look look at home. Look, go down to a shop now. And look at the shelf in, in, a, in a supermarket that has a range of wine and you can count on one hand how many of them are going to have a cork. Now you mentioned Findladders there, which is still going strong, but did it have a collaboration with Nash Wine at a time? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I worked for Nash's at the, for, for years and our, when I started with Nash's in 1999, the uh, original name of that company was Findlader Nash. And Nash would be best known for its minerals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, best known as Richard Nash, um, who's still in town here, um, has um, had a, a, a number of companies, but one of them was uh, uh, the Mineral Water Company, uh, Nash Mineral Waters, uh, also involved in Nash Beverages, which was the collaboration with Heineken. Uh, and then there was a division called, it ended up being Nash Wines, which was a, um, 
a division dedicated to on-trade wines. Very successful, actually. Because I believe Nash Wines did start to import and bottle wine in the late 1800s. Yeah. Yeah, it was as, as early as that. It was, but that was very common now. You know, that was very common. That was an unusual thing to happen. If you had wholesalers like Nash's, you know, you'd have Donahue's in Wexford, uh, Letts as well down in the southeast. That would have been, they'd have bought in barrels of, um, you know, casks of port and uh, even whiskey casks and bottled on site. That would have been a fairly uh, a normal thing to have done because you wouldn't have had the flexibility from the producers to do it for you. You know, they were happy to sell you a cask or something and do whatever you want to, whereas now the producer wouldn't let you do that. They want to know exactly what's happening to it, as in what bottle is going into, you know, that they're getting the recognition for what's in it, whereas there wasn't as much at that that time. And uh, Nash's originally was just a fascinating story. Um, Richard Nash's father, that company was just hugely successful, like hugely, uh, and a real trailblazer, uh, I remember being at a, at a dinner once with Rich Nash talking about um, um, water, you know, sparkling water, which is Ballygown, obviously, you know, and, and the connection there. But Richard said they were producing siphon water, carbonated uh, water, 120, 130 years ago. Yeah, I, th- I read in 1873, Joanna Nash, who mm. I'd say would be Richard Nash's grandmother or great-grandmother, learned to carbonate water and carbonate drinks, and that's how the whole fizzy side of the business mm. started. But also you're saying about Ballygowan Water there, that the guy, Jeff Reed, that started Ballygowan Water with Richard Nash, mm. he was the man that introduced the small bottles of wine to Ireland under a company called Grape Expectations. Mm, that's right, yeah, yeah. I just read that recently and thought that was quite interesting because, again, that's something we've talked about here on the show, mm. about the small bottles of wine. Like Ireland is one of the largest consumers yeah, yeah, of that it's one after of the, the only, airlines. Uh, yeah, after the airlines, absolutely, because the airline business has always been there for it. But um, uh, And some festival business and stuff now has broken into that as well in other countries because they need... Uh, plastic or PT plastic uh, quarter bottles are used a lot as they're used in planes now as well and there was a guy on Dragon's Den in the UK I don't know if you saw him where he was doing it's like a wine plastic wine glass mm. with the sealed top with the wine in it I've seen it the, I didn't see it now, but I've, I've seen them for sale now the, 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 well I don't think he got the investment from Dragon's mm. Den in the UK but it, yeah, that, that was been done probably about seven or eight years ago there was a product being sold particularly for festivals where you know, it had like similar to a yogurt pull off top on it. Yeah, you know, exactly. Foil yeah. Top, yeah. And you pulled it off, and then the wine was in it already. And it meant they could store them in refrigeration and, and be ready to go. And there was no glasses, and it was a single serve. Um, they looked absolutely dreadful now. But they, <laughs> and you know, who knows? But listen, it, well, was, it served a purpose. Well, packaging is something that's very important, really. Mm-hmm. You know, when they say you eat with your eyes, maybe at a festival, you're not so worried mm-hmm. about that. But some of the wines that you've got today, you've one yes. particular wine here and it has a lovely label on it that is textured. Yes. Well, what I thought was that when, when I picked a few wines for us to look at today, I bought two New Zealand products because just the, the popularity is, is phenomenal on, on New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc in particular. And uh, I brought two Malbecs uh, from Argentina, again for the reason that Ireland has just taken the Malbec um, in a ferocious way in the last uh, two years, year and a half really, I suppose. And people have gone from, we've gone from having maybe two Malbecs on our list and them tipping away very slowly in restaurants to now we have eight Malbecs. Um, 
uh, one Italian, uh, one French, and uh, six Argentinian. Actually, I have another Chilean. That's nine, a Chilean one as well. But six Argentinian Malbecs. And is it mainly South America that they would come from? Well, no, the Malbec is, is traditional South of France grape. Um, works fairly well in Italy as well, and was transferred to Italy. Um, but when it went to Argentina, Mendoza and San Juan in Argentina, it just found its natural home, found the weather that really suited it. And even if you take the, the, the south of France product from the Rhone Valley, where it's traditionally been from, and compare that to the Malbec in Argentina, the Malbec in Argentina is a much bigger product, much more powerful. Um, just the finer weather made it more mature, quicker, um, gave it more sugar content, higher alcohol, uh, but a real, real powerful drink. And not to everybody's taste, we always thought, because it was, it was has a little bit of a rough element to it that's not as fine or delicate as Merlois or Cabernet or any of those. Um, but it's Irish people has really taken to it very well. Very food-orientated wine. But as, as we said already, the, for the amount of sales we're seeing, it, it's not all attached to food. People are in bars drinking glasses of it now where they're not eating as well. That's fairly obvious. It must be the case. Because it's the sort of wine that I would opt for if I was having a steak mm, because I've been told it goes very well with steak. It does because look where it comes from. It's coming from Argentina where their you know, meat is, is it. You know, that's the um, vegetarians must have a, just a horrific time uh, because it's so much meat, uh, so much big cuts um, uh, and fried meat, you know, barbecued, very strong flavoured meat. And this is uh, Malbec's the perfect version. I bought two Malbecs, one from Mendoza, which is the, um, I suppose, the most well-known area in Argentina, another one from San Juan, which is a little bit over towards, more towards Chile um, and closer to the Andes and a really up-and-coming area in Argentina. And the best thing about that was the Malbecs is they're very good value. Like both of those are coming in around 12 or 13 euros. So not that expensive. Mm-hmm. But they're at the upper end now. They're at the better end. And it's very interesting that this one, the year I know is on all the bottles of wine, but the year is very prominent on yeah, this one. Yeah, smacked it right out front, yeah, which is, um, now they haven't as much, but uh, the, this for the Luigi Bosca is the producer of this La Linda Malbec. Um, like costing around 12 euros a bottle I think it's a fantastic product big heavy bottle everything about it is good real quality and it's a really smashing product in 2015 vintage that but a lovely lovely product not in any shops at all and should it be drunk young yes yeah it's not they're not meant like those ones now they make a reserve version of this it's not called reserve it's called a select because they can't use the word reserve in Argentina um, so it's a selected version of this which is a um, much more a for an aging product and when they're aged this is put into the bottle to be ready to drink immediately as um, soon as it hits the bottle but then they produce other products which are not quite ready so there might be 2012 now of that selected that would be perfect yet when it was originally released a couple of years ago it would have been a bit young to drink it would have been fine it just wouldn't be as good as what it is and why can't they use reserve in Argentina? they changed the rules because uh, Chile haven't done this yet um, reserve means things in various countries. Um, I suppose Spain is the best um, is the best example of it, where it actually means something. Uh, there's a criteria that it needs to fall into, and it's time and oak, time in an oak barrel that gives it that, that allows you to call it. In Spain, allows you to call it a crianza, which is uh, up to six months uh, reserva, which is nine months plus, and then gran reserva, which is eighteen months plus in the in the the cask. Now that that's criteria that you have to follow. Uh, whereas in when it was in Argentina, reserve meant you just liked it more than the other one. 
you know you felt was better than the previous one or the other one and the same in Chile and that doesn't really mean anything so it has no and it's kind of deceptive for the people who are buying it because they assume that this product is better where oft times it's not so the selected a lot of the companies use the word selected or they might have selection or they might have a different ways of single vineyard where they say it actually comes from somewhere in particular but the, the, the selected version of this one is an actual parcel where they believe the best Malbec is grown and it comes from there so a lot of them are very proactive. They do it properly. you know. They and you would know that, but your average diner sitting in the restaurant wouldn't necessarily know that, just that the price would be an indicator. Yeah, the price would be a fairly serious indicator. Like, you jump up significantly. So on a restaurant wine list, like, that Lelinda would be somewhere around 27 euros, 26, 27 euros, and the selective version would be 35. Okay. The other Malbec then? It's Lunaris. This is from Calia, uh, from San Juan, different region. Uh, if anything, it's a slight bit more easier to drink than the Mendoza ones. It's not as rough around the edges, a bit more refined. Uh, but it's really up and coming. And this is, uh, we have this in two labels, as it turns out, uh, Lunaris and uh, Cali Alta, because we sell quite a lot of it to the same kind of places. So we have two labels in it to kind of diversify. But it's the same product. Same product inside. Same product inside. Okay. That happens quite a bit with wine. Whereas, um, you know, it's so you can't, there's a certain bit of, um, there needs to be an exclusivity for products. Uh, and really, you just need to be able to, to manage that. And a lot of the time, the winery will say, well, we have two labels um, for the product if you want. We're happy to put them on it. Yeah. So that works very well. Uh, yeah, and I know, Nick, all of your wines, as you said, you can't get them in shops because I think whenever you do go out to, to eat, if you see something that's mm. on the menu that you can buy in the local supermarket for a fraction uh, yeah. of the price, Absolutely. it doesn't. It's not a good feeling. I, I listen. There's nothing wrong with them, you know, because there's products, huge branded products, that are very popular. And there's a reason they're very popular because they're actually very nice. But I think there is an issue. You know, there's a certain amount of. Um, you don't need to be shoved in your face the fact that you can buy something for 10 euros and that it may be 27 or 28 euros in a restaurant. Like, you just don't need to be really told that. that uh, there's a few products that kind of good, that kind of manage to, to, to serve both. Um, there is uh, Wolf Plas is one, uh, for example, and I sell Wolf Plas as well. And uh, restaurants still buy it and will not take it off the list because there's such a huge following for it. It's remarkable. Is that because people are familiar with it? Familiar and really like it. The product's very good. Like there's nothing. Uh, the quality is exceptionally good at the lower levels, particularly you know the like the house wine and the one above it. They're very very good products. Um, but then everybody knows the price of it. You know everybody knows that, that product is, off times eight fifty or nine euros in the supermarket on offer. You know there's, there's a certain amount. Now the chance of the restaurants won't be able to buy it for that at all. They'll probably pay more. Probably better cheaper for them to buy it in the shop actually, if they thought about it. Mad, yeah. It is. And then let's talk about the New Zealand. Yes. They're both Sauvignon Blancs. Both Sauvignon Blancs uh, from two different areas in New Zealand. Marlborough, which is the area, you know, it's the one that gets all the attention. And then Hawke's Bay, which has uh, been around for the sale at the time, but doesn't quite produce as much wine, uh, but very produces really unique products. And this is a product called Elephant Hill. It's a winery owned by German people. Um, they set it up um, probably about 15 years ago now. Uh, in our Nash days, we dealt with these as people as well, and we've started dealing with them again now. Um, and the Elephant Hill is, is basically, they have an elephant uh, sculpture in the, on the way into the vineyard, a huge one. You've visited it? Have no, you, I've been never there? been to New okay. Zealand, but I'm going to go sometime, my kids. 
<laughs> get through college maybe um, <laughs> but the uh, owned by a German people they do everything right everything is just remarkably doing well and they believe they're the closest uh, vineyard to the ocean in the world because the beach literally runs into the vineyard the sand is, is right there and they believe they're the closest. They haven't seen anywhere else closer. And how does that impact on the flavour of the grapes and, and the, the ultimate end product? Well, see, the, the air movement is hugely important for, for grape growing. You need hot days and cool nights. And the sea gives you that. You know, mountains give you that as well. Uh, so a lot of the stuff around the Andes in South America grows particularly well for that reason. Um, but it works really well. Now, there's a salt issue, you know, of course, which needs to be handled as well. You can't allow salt to get in there or water to wash in on top of it. That would be a disaster. So when I mean very close, I mean from 25 feet or 30 feet away from where the beach would start. But um, it's a beautiful setting. Uh, a friend of mine was there, actually. He was over at the, um, at the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, maybe four or five years ago. And we organised a visit from his customer who bought it. And he was just amazed. They have a restaurant. They have a tasty rooms amazing place I love the label we'd mentioned yeah. the label before about the texture yes, label the it's just it's just adds something extra to it it's like elephant and skin is that's it that's the idea yeah. okay cool yeah but I want to emphasise the fact it has nothing to do with elephants and there's no elephants <laughs> harmed in this it's just a texture put on the thing and the other one is that it was a really unique product it's called Kono um, which is the first uh, from Marlborough uh, Sauvignon Blanc as well uh, first 100% owned Maori Maori owned vineyard in New Zealand now they have a whole uh, wine is one part of what they do they have a whole food mentality as well where they grow vegetables fruit uh, honey uh, olive oil a whole uh, cooperative idea put together all Maori based and uh, but this, uh, this is not a gimmicky product now. This product is winning uh, awards all around it. It's a smashing product and it's fantastic value. A really, really good value. And how much would those wines retail at? That's about €12 Euros a bottle. Uh, that's about 16 now. It's more okay, expensive. yeah. All um, right. The Elephant Hill. The Elephant Hill. Right. But the Kono is about 12 12 a bottle. Okay. Very good value. Well, all great looking wines. Thanks a million for coming in and telling You're us welcome. about them tonight. And of course, forestal.ie is the web address. Yes. If people want to get in touch or place an order, they'll get all your details there. Absolutely. Great Thanks, to talk Sean. to you as always. Cheers. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was in the studio talking about wines from New Zealand and a few Malbecs also. And if you're just tuning in now and you missed that, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, we'll be grabbing a caffeine fix, compliments of Kerry Murphy and Sean Naughton from Coffee Operations at Apple Green. But before that, we're returning to Taste of Dublin, where Sarah O'Neill was doing cereal tastings of the new products by Kellogg's and I had a quick chat with her. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
Sarah, you're from Kellogg's, which would be a very well-known brand in terms of breakfast cereal, but the background to the company is actually very interesting. That's correct, yes. Um, it was set up in around 1906. Originally, it was by two brothers, the two Kellogg brothers. But our founder, we recognise as William Keith Kellogg, who's kind of the inventor of cornflakes. And how he came up with cornflakes is actually really interesting. They both worked in essentially what would be today kind of like a retreat. And they believed in kind of wholesome, plain, simple food that would be good for people to help them kind of relax and to kind of calm down a little bit. So they were both committed vegetarians. So the, the new range we've launched today is very much taking its cue from the original diets of, of the two Kellogg brothers, particularly William Keith Kellogg. And actually we've called our new range WK Kellogg in his honour. So cornflakes would have been the original cereal that came from the company? That's correct, yeah. Cornflakes was the original cereal that came from the company and it was very much, again, a plain, simple, wholesome food that was to give people, again, to kind of keep them calm. Again, a very kind of wholesome and, again, vegetarian food as well, yes. Is it an obvious question to ask what what are the main ingredients in cornflakes? Because I think a lot of people might not actually have registered. Sure, it's mainly corn, as the name would suggest. And actually, we get a particularly a particularly golden type of corn for our cornflakes, which is what makes them quite special. So it actually comes from Argentina, and how we make cornflakes is literally like one crushed kernel of corn toasted into a flake, and there you have your cornflakes. As easy as that. As easy as that, indeed. Tell us about the new range. Sure. Well, so with the new range, as I kind of touched on before, we've got a number of different variants. There's six variants in all in the UK and Ireland. We have some no added sugar granolas. We've got some kind of the traditional wheats have been renovated into lovely new organic wheat. So we've got a raisin and a classic wheat. We also have some um, with no added sugar and we've got some super grain variants as well. The whole entire range is entirely vegan, so there's nothing in it that vegans can't eat. It's not fortified. All the minerals and vitamins in it are naturally occurring. So very much kind of down that wholesome, healthy, natural well-being route that a lot of people are taking these days. And why did you decide to bring some new products into the range? Was it in response to consumer demand? Yeah, well, we obviously we do listen to our consumers and we know, you know, obviously in the age of social media, it's, it's a two-way conversation these days. And we know that consumers are looking for more from us than just kind of, you know, the staples. So we have not only brought out this new food, we've also renovated some of our old food. I don't know if you've seen it, but we've, you know, lo- lowered the sugar and cocoa pops by 30%. So we are listening to what consumers want and we're kind of providing both renovated versions of our old food and new kind of innovations that we hope they'll like as well. And dare I say the Rice Krispies and the Corn Flakes are very diverse products that can be used for lots of different (laughs) things including my baking repertoire for the the school bake seal. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. You know, and I, we see our social media channel hopping when we, you know, when we ask questions about what people do with their cornflakes. You, the the ideas and the variations would astound you. There is un- unlimited combinations of things you can have with your cornflakes. But also recently, we've kind of started doing that ourselves. You know, in our social media channels, we do that. We've made you know all sorts of stuff out of Rice Krispie cakes. We did a, a lovely. Um, Pride cake, you know, for for uh, gay pride, did a lovely cake that was a rainbow-coloured rice crispy cake that I think anyone would be proud to bring to a school bake sale. Absolutely.
absolutely. And then, of course, the cornflakes have been used in various different dishes for coatings instead of your breadcrumbs. Yeah, that's right. You can. I think people quite often do a, a chicken dish with uh, cornflakes as a, as a breadcrumb coating instead of having the actual breadcrumbs if they're trying to kind of avoid eating that much bread or whatever. So they are definitely an alternative to a lot of things too. And as I said, if you go onto our social media channels, there's hundreds of recipes, not only from us, but from our, our fans and followers out there as well. And would I be correct in saying that cornflakes is the most popular type of cereal that you have? So it depends, I suppose, because we look at it through a European lens, we see you know, all the different kind of breakfast habits across Europe. And sometimes in the UK, crunchy nut will, will top, the, top the pops. Um, and then other times, you know, Rice Krispies or cornflakes will be the most popular. And again, it depends if we've got, you know, like a Christmas pack out, if it's a, you know, like we had Santa on our Christmas packs last year and they flew off shelves. So I guess it depends on the season, on the, on the different markets. But yeah, cornflakes are an absolute staple for most consumers across Europe. And you've had some great advertising campaigns over the years. Like I can still remember the Special K, if yeah. you can pinch an inch. And you can pinch several inches on me now, so I probably should be incorporating more Special K into my diet. So I guess Special K is another one of our brands that's changed. We've kind of moved away from the diet, the starvation diet, you know, away from the two-week challenge, and we're more about kind of what powers women and what actually fuels women to get through the day. You know, and, and we have a nutrient bundle in our current Special K flakes that actually is designed to get women through the day. So, you know, our flake is designed to kind of be, you know, a, a, a power fuel rather than kind of you know something that you would kind of lose weight on it's 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 a different brand these days well congratulations on the new range do you have a personal favorite yourself that you would recommend (laughs) you know I think they're all fantastic but I think the cocoa cashew and almond one is really delicious and I just think they're all they're all great fantastic well I look forward to trying thanks for telling me about them today thank you very much Sharon really pleasure speaking to you You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard about the history of Kellogg's and were introduced to their new serials by Sarah O'Neill and earlier in the programme Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was talking about wine with us. If you are just tuning in now and you've missed some of that you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Now we're going back to Taste of Dublin and this year Apple Green had a stand showcasing their coffee options and skills. I met Kerry Murphy and Sean Naughton from the company's coffee operations division. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleite. Sean, you're head of operations with Apple Green and the coffee side. Tell me exactly what that involves. I suppose uh, it's really ensuring day-to-day coffee and Apple Green that every single customer gets the exact same experience and because it gives us a chance to show off the, the quality of coffee that we have and gives us a chance to show our baristas um, what, what they're capable of doing as well and I suppose ensuring the, the future uh, development of coffee within Apple Green as well. 
a few years ago, whenever you went into a filling station, you'd pressed a button on a machine, but it has really changed. Yeah, I think coffee's come a long way now in the last kind of two, three years, especially within the, the four core convenience uh, section, which we're kind of in as well. Um, I suppose we've really upped our game as well. We've we've really taken pride in the, the fact that our coffee is a very good quality uh, and we suppose we want to shout it off all the time, yeah. Tell us about the quality and where you source the ingredients to make the great coffee that you have. Uh, we have our we have a coffee uh, supplier in um, in Italy called Levazza. Uh, we buy their beans and we roast them. Oh, sorry, they roast them and um, we use them in our four courts. And Kerry, you do the training then. I do. So which is a lot of fun. It's uh, I go to the site and I just make sure the staff are keeping up with the current trends and the way we do things. Coffee is dynamic, it's popular, so we want to keep up with the high standards and have all our staff delivering the same kind of standards because we want to give our best coffee to our customers. And we're really proud of the staff that we have and the training that they're given and we're really proud that they take pride in the work that they're doing and the coffee that they're giving the customers. You must cover a lot of miles because you have a great geographic spread around the country. Yes, yes. uh, The the new car has a lot of mileage on it, but I don't mind. Um, Part of the job that I love is actually working with the people and getting in with them and getting involved in what they're doing and kind of hearing their their worries and their queries and kind of alleviating it. And I like to see them take pride in their work. Like It's always happy when the, the guys get a bit of latte art and they're really proud of it, you know. What is the most popular coffee in the market at the moment in terms of latte or cappuccino or Americano? Americano seems to always be the base that everyone loves. But after that, I'd say it's your latte. And I think when you can do that bit of art on a latte and stuff, it shows the skills that you have. And is there a lot of training goes into it? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of training. We actually hold uh, classes of training. We also are very proud. We paired with the ETB, um, City and Guilds, and we built a, a barista course for our staff. So we had 66 people go through it, the first one that we've done. Um, and then also we're going to sites. Usually for the site visits, it's actually more me kind of helping them brush up on their skills. It's great that it is a career choice now, and yeah. it is a trained, it's a trained job. Well, this is it with the with the barista skills. You can go anywhere with it, but like what we've noticed is once the people have the skills, the comfort, and the knowledge, they we tend to retain them in the company. Like Apple Green's great to work for, and we've really good staff. As you can see from the guys that we have here today, like they're they're all Apple Green, uh, Bakewell, Costa, Lavazza. And so these people are usually in an Apple Green store throughout the country. Yeah, absolutely. You can find every single one of these in one of our stores. Yeah, we're so they're pushing out the message of best coffee on the road and we picked some of the best ones here today to, to really convey that message. Yeah. And you're doing a few little different things today because I had a coffee caviar and I haven't seen that at my local Apple Green. Yeah, that, that's something that we, we kind of came up with for today. We said, you know, what, what can we give the, the general public a taste of Dublin? You know, a bit of a sample of something really cool. So we're doing coffee caviar. You know, it's a very, I suppose, new and you know not really uh, discovered um you know drink but uh, yeah it's, it's worked really well now today we've got good feedback from it and tell me about nitro coffee what's that all about the nitro brew coffee is a fairly new it's a cold brew coffee it uses um, air pressure you mix the um the coffee with nitrogen it gets injected with it usually from the air outside and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's like drinking a like drinking a beer or a Guinness with coffee. Is that, it's is that cold. A, yeah. It's it cold. is cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like to rival the iced tea market, which didn't really ever take off here in Ireland. No, iced tea is a hard push. Now I think hopefully with the good weather that we have at the moment, uh, you have seen a rise in the the iced coffee sales. Because I don't know about you, I drink a lot of coffee. I'd have a couple of coffees in the morning, but by the afternoon I need something cold to keep going. Um, but the nitro brew is kind of a good in between of that. 
um, the fact that it's it's quick, it's easy to give to the customer, and then you can put in flavors to it because the nitro brew, if you get to try it, is uh, can be quite rich. And is that something that you're demonstrating here today? Because I see you have a program of activities taking place. Yeah, yeah, we've got a good program. And we also, we've paired with uh, pastry chef Darren Hogarth from uh, Chapter One. And he's going to be doing kind of a demonstration as well uh, between uh, two and half seven. Uh, so he'll be doing uh, some suppose, recipes that you can use our coffee in and use them at home. I think he's doing macaroons. Uh, so maybe should be good, pretty good as well. Fabulous. It sounds like you're in for a busy weekend. Definitely. We're actually also doing a latte art competition, which you are more than welcome to try. So we'll demonstrate how to do some latte art. We'll make some milk for you and you can pour it. So I expect to see you there first. Sounds interesting. <laughs> sounds interesting. Listen, thanks so much for telling me all about it today and enjoy the show. Thanks very much. Thanks, thanks a lot. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. And that was Kerry and Sean from Apple Green at Taste of Dublin bringing us to the end of tonight's programme. And thanks again to all of this evening's guests, Ron Forrestal, Sarah O'Neill, Kerry Murphy and Sean Naughton. And thanks to you for listening. And don't forget to get in touch with your food and drink news, recipes and events. Drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie. I'm taking a break for a few weeks for the summer and hopefully to enjoy a little bit of sunshine. So for the next few weeks, will be airing second helping shows for you to enjoy. But don't worry, I shall return soon. And until then, bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>